Amen, amen. While you remain standing, let me invite the kiddos to meet their teachers right over here. And if you are a community group leader or you host a community group, remain standing while everybody sits down. So if you host a community group or you lead a community group, just remain standing. So if you don't have a community group to go to, just look around and find one of these men or women after and say, hey, where's your group? I'd like to come. If it doesn't fit, find somebody else. But all right, you can remain seated. And you can sit down too. Uh, and y'all can go to, you can, yes. Uh, my name is Joey, and I serve as one of the pastors here, and it is my distinct privilege to open up God's Word and preach for us this morning. And before I do that, I am going to pray for us. Let's pray. God, you are worthy to be praised. You are glorious and magnificent. And so we come and we open up your word to look at your son in whom we have life. Comfort us, we pray. Challenge us, move us, that we might love Jesus more when we leave this place. Amen. Amen. What do you do when life does not turn out like you'd hoped? In the midst of difficult situations, when you're disappointed with God, can you even admit that? When you're confused about Jesus, where do you take your questions? Just believe. God is sovereign, so don't ask questions. Repeat trite Christian answers. Use Bible buzzwords to deflect any hint of doubt. Wear the plastic smile, especially on Sunday morning. Is that what we're supposed to do? Is it ever okay for the Christian to be confused? Is it ever okay to not have all the answers? Is it okay, dare I even say, to voice our displeasure about God? Where do we turn when life is far from what we expected. Well, as we turn to Luke chapter 7 this morning, I think we'll find some of those answers. So we turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 7. If you need to grab a Bible from the pew, you'll find it on page 863 is where we'll be. If you're new to the Bible, when I say chapter, that's the big number. When I say verse, that's the little number. So we'll be in Luke, big number 7, little number 18 through 35. Here's the word of God. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? 
What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messengers before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having him baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. You say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, wisdom is justified by all her children. It's the word of God. Do you remember why Luke wrote this gospel in the first place? Do you remember back to chapter 1? Luke tells us he wrote to tell us all that was accomplished by Jesus so that we might have certainty in who Jesus is and what he has done and why this is good news for all who trust and treasure him. The gospel of Luke is about King Jesus and the kingdom. And here's the thing. This king defies expectations. This kingdom redefines categories. King Jesus does not fit into our neatly predefined box. He can't be squeezed into the margin of our comfortable lives. This king shatters the box and rewrite the pages of our life that he might bring us into his kingdom, that we might have joy everlasting. When you read the gospel, you'll see Jesus was a surprising person to be around, wasn't he? His interactions left the religious leaders offended. His teaching left crowds astonished. His actions made disciples confused. His words left sinners forgiven. Jesus challenged and he comforts. He delivers and he disturbs. He messes with us and gives us mercy all at the same time. Remember from chapter 6, Sermon on the Plain. He laid out this kingdom. Those who are hungry now will be full later. Those who weep now will laugh later. Love your enemies. Bless and pray for those who persecute you. What comes out of you is actually inside of you. This kingdom Jesus speaks about is upside down, forward, back, inside, out. And last week we began to peer at the king himself. Remember the Roman soldier? Jesus marvels at his faith. And Jesus is so powerful he can raise the dead. And yet so compassionate he tenderly tends to a weeping widow. In today's passage, we'll see Jesus comforts the weak and confused while condemning the religiously prideful. Next week, as Nick preaches for us, we'll see how Jesus interacts with the most rebellious of people. So in chapter 7, we begin to see Jesus. Jesus is the Lord who marvels at the believing. Jesus is the prophet who has compassion on the weeping. Jesus is the Messiah who comforts the doubting. And Jesus is the Savior who forgives the repenting. This is the King. This morning, we'll confine 
our attention to verses 18 through 35, where we see Jesus is the promised Messiah who comforts our doubting. See, God knows. We, we saw this when we started the book of Luke. God knows that we all struggle. We have concerns and questions. And God, in his kindness, gave us this word to meet us where we are. And so to help us walk through this text, let me give you three movements on which to hang our thoughts. Share your doubts humbly. Look to Jesus quickly. Rest in Jesus confidently. Share humbly. Look quickly. Rest confidently. That's where we're going. Let's jump in. Share humbly. Everybody say share humbly. Nice. Verses 18 through 20. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples, sent to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look to for another? So the last time we saw John was back in chapter 3. Remember what he was doing? Where was he? Where was John in chapter 3? He was baptizing in the wilderness, preaching nice, fluffy sermons, right? No. He's, he's, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath that is to come? This one who's coming after me is mightier than I am, and he's bringing the winnowing floor. He's going to go to the threshing floor. He's bringing the boom. And before chapter 3 ended, where was John? What happened to him? Where was he sitting? Prison. John was thrown in prison for boldly preaching God's word about marriage and sexual immorality. And he lands in prison. So John, sitting in prison, hears these reports. Notice the text says he heard all these things. Well, what these things? Well, he's heard that instead of liberating Israel from Rome's oppression, Jesus is marveling at a Roman soldier's faith. Instead of crushing the enemy, Jesus is preaching, love your enemy. Instead of bringing the judgment, grace for all who come to Christ humbly. And John's sitting there like, are you serious? From kings to commoners, presidents to paupers, I'm faithfully pointing people to Jesus and I'm rewarded with a prison sentence? I'm sitting here? He's disappointed? He's puzzled? And he asks, Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should I look for another? This is shocking. Think about John's spiritual resume. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. His dad spoke to the angel Gabriel face to face. He's filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. And when Jesus shows up in the womb, John in the womb leaps for joy. He hears God the Father speak of God the Son at Jesus' baptism. He preaches mightily about the coming king. He inaugurates the ministry of Jesus. Jesus shows up and John says, I'm not worthy to untie this man's sandals. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now, in a dark night of the soul, with a troubled heart, he wonders. In the midst of difficult circumstances, unmet expectations. Jesus, are you who you say you are? John's doing everything right, and his world's collapsing. He's puzzled, confused, we might even say doubting a bit. 
Are we any different? When God fails to work just the way we expect Him to, we might begin to question God. If John, God's hand-picked prophet, has confusions and doubts, then we might too. In fact, in Jude 22, it says, have mercy on those who doubt. Paul says he was perplexed. Read the Psalms, beloved. Are they not filled with saints crying out in confusion, trying to move from pain to promise, doubt to certainty? And so at some point, maybe it's today, maybe it's tomorrow or next year, you'll probably wrestle with doubt and confusion. And maybe like here, it'll come from difficult circumstances or unmet expectations. Maybe it's you right now. Maybe you've experienced a recent tragedy and you're wondering, God, where are you? You long for a godly spouse, yet your desires are left unmet. And if you're honest, you're disappointed with God. You've prayed fervently for a stable job. You've you've sent out resumes and no answer. And you're frustrated. You desperately desire children. You see others getting pregnant and having children. And you can't get pregnant. And you're upset with God. God, why them and not me? Why so many women that don't even want a child get pregnant? And I can't. You see brokenness all around the world. You heard Daniel pray for this. You read the news. And it's brokenness, war, famine, hunger. Disease, death, terrorism. And you wonder, is God up to anything? And if he is, is it anything good? And God in his kindness gives us a word in Luke 7 to remind us we can share our doubts, our thoughts, our questions without being ashamed. It's one of the reasons I love the Bible. It's so refreshingly honest. It's not dry and disconnected from our lives. God in his kindness meets us where we are. So all of us, myself included, need to be willing to share our confusion, our questions, our doubts. Has anybody else ever had the thought? Like, I moved my entire life here. Sometimes I wake up like, what have I done? I was so helped by Charles Spurgeon, who's an old 19th century pastor. Here's what he said. I quote, some of us who have preached the word for years and have been the means of working faith in others and of establishing them in the knowledge of the fundamental doctrines of the Bible have nevertheless been the subjects of the most fearful and violent doubts as to the truth of the very gospel we have preached. End quote. Oh, thank you, Charles. And he just stands in a long line of saints. See, God is not embarrassed by the struggles of believers. And God's people, the church, shouldn't be either. And I praise God that on the whole, that marks this church. By God's grace, I don't think that we try to uphold a just believe and keep your mouth shut mentality. I praise God for that. And by God's grace, let's resolve to continue to be a church where we openly, honestly, vulnerably wrestle with our confusion as we pursue Christ together. Let's be a church that shares our unmet expectations, how we might be upset, frustrated. Beloved, share these things with God and with each other. Parents, can I plead with you to to invite the questions of your children. Make your home a safe place where your kid can ask, why do you believe Jesus is who he said he is? Why do we believe the word of God is found in the Bible? 
Kids, ask your parents questions. Say, Pastor Joey said so. Ask questions. Ask questions to other members, other people you see in this church. And children and adults, recognize you don't have to have it all figured out before you trust and follow Jesus. None of us will ever know everything there is to know about God. If we do, our God is too small. But we can know the most important things about him. See, none of us are perfect. We're all works in progress. We are weak clay jars. And if we don't show our cracks, the glory of God will never shine through. And also remember, if we only talk about our cracks, the glory of God will go unnoticed. Yes, yes, we might be struggling and weak, but our Savior is strong and willing. And so our doubt does not have to destroy all our delight in and devotion to Jesus. Another old pastor preached this. Doubting does not prove a person has no faith, but only that his faith is small. And even when our faith is small, the Lord is ready to help us. Quote. So we remember, beloved, that the good news, the gospel is not a command for us to hang on to Jesus. It's a promise Jesus holds on to us. He will hold us fast. Now let me keep us from going too far. So just because doubt isn't necessarily a vice to be condemned, it's not a virtue to be celebrated. See, there's going to be this idea that in order to be authentic, in order to be humble, you have to always have some level of uncertainty, some level of doubt, that you should always have an open mind, never fully sure about anything, especially not the claims as significant as Jesus is the only way to know God. Jesus is the only true Savior. Christianity is the one true religion. So doubt should not be used as an excuse to be skeptical about everything. If you see through everything, you see nothing. G.K. Chesterton said, merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. That's what John is doing. Notice John does not demand anything from Jesus. He's humbly asking and sharing. Why? So he can close his mind on the solid fact that Jesus is the Savior of God. He's not just sharing his doubts so he can sit in them. He wants to overcome them and his confusion. And remember, remember why Luke wrote this gospel. So that we might be what? Certain. Fully assured about Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his reign, his return. So it's important to realize that. And it's also important to realize that the difference between seeking doubt and settled unbelief. We see that in this very passage. Drop your eyes down to verse 31 and 32. So Jesus is speaking. He says, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? In other words, the, the people that generally don't believe. What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. Jesus says the current generation is like spoiled children who demand everyone play their game their way. Hey, Jesus, we play a happy tune, you have to dance. If we play a sad song, you have to cry, Jesus. 
These people are placing demands upon Jesus. Instead of praising Jesus as the promised Savior, they're trying to treat him as a stringed puppet. But Jesus did not come to dance to our tune. He came to deliver us that we might sing of his glory. Jesus goes on in verses 33 and 34. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The people ridiculed John because he didn't eat and drink in a normal fashion. And they reject Jesus because he did. They won't repent with John. They won't rejoice with Jesus. Neither the message of judgment nor the message of grace will make them see their rebellion. So no matter what they were confronted with, these people refused to see their sin as a shameful offense against the king who deserves all honor and praise. They wouldn't believe Jesus who he said he was. Unless, unless Jesus met their demands. I wonder if that's some of you here this morning. You tell yourself, I would believe in Jesus if he would fill in the blank. Can I suggest you don't want a God like that? If God is small enough to fit into your box, he's not big enough to be God. Think about it. If your version of God does everything you always want, your version of God always affirms your desires. Who then is truly God? Do you see the difference between humble confusion and hardened unbelief? Doubt is the process of looking for light. Unbelief takes pleasure in darkness. Doubt honestly rustles. Unbelief persistently rejects. There's nothing wrong with confusion. Doubt, as long as it's honest and humble. And this kind of confusion doesn't demand things from God. Like the people in this, the end of this chapter. This kind of questions humbly shares and quickly looks to Christ. This text is asking us all a question. Will your heart be hardened or humbled by Jesus. Will you look to Jesus? That's what happens next. John asks, are you the one? And Jesus essentially replies, look at me. Look at me. Everybody say, look quickly. There we go. That's what happens. Verse 21. In that hour, many people, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Jesus gets the question from John's disciples. And what does the text say? It says, in that hour. So Jesus gets the question and then does many more healings. Now, when I first read this, I'm like, Jesus, are you being insensitive and unkind? Like, are you trying to rub it in John's face that he sits in prison and you're doing all these miracles? Are you trying to rebuke John in a backhanded way by showing what you can do while leaving him sitting there? I don't think that's what's going on. Notice Jesus does not tell John, shut your mouth, get with the program. How long do I have to put up with you, John? Isn't your job, John, to point to me? Why are you asking questions? What's your problem, John? No, this is a picture of the kindness and gentleness of Jesus. 
He gets the question and immediately delivers more people in the presence of John's disciples. The question is why? So they could have concrete evidence to take back to John. Jesus doesn't rebuke John for his doubt. He assures him with evidence. You see what kind of savior we have. He's tender with the weak. He comforts the doubting. That's what he's doing here. And and remember, as Jesus was on earth, so he is in heaven right now. Behold the precious patience of Jesus. Even in our doubts and our confusion, he's compassionate and kind and ready to instruct us and receive us when we look to him. Like John here, quickly look to Jesus. Don't let your confusion turn you away from him, but to him all the more. Don't let your doubts make you make demands upon Christ, but make them make you dependent upon Christ. Jesus is tender with those who humbly come to him. We see that here. Jesus says, go instruct your disciples. Go tell John all that you've seen and heard. Tell John the blind now see. Tell tell John formerly blind men are now squinting as the sun as they try to behold the blue sky. Tell John that formerly blind mothers light their face lighting up because they see their children for the first time. Tell John, while you're there, tell John the lame walk. Tell John men are throwing down their crutches and running around. Tell John little boys and girls that couldn't run and play with their friends are now playing tag and climbing trees. Tell John that. And while you're there, tell John, tell John the lepers are no longer on the fringe of the city crying out, unclean, unclean. They're with God's people in the center worshiping God together. Tell John the lepers are cleansed. And while you're there, tell John the deaf here. Tell, tell John about that little boy who, who heard the birds chirping for the first time and was like, what is that? Tell John about the grandmother who, who heard her grandson look at her and not just have to read the lips, but heard an audible, I love you, Grandma. Tell John that. And while you're there, tell John the dead are raised up to life, alive, speaking, breathing. And while you're there, tell John. Tell John, I'm preaching good news to the poor, the outcasts, the lame, the sinners, the forgotten. They're, they're getting good news. Tell John those things. Powerful answer. And yet, why not just yes or no, Jesus? Why not just yes or no? Here's the thing. Anybody could have answered John's question with a yes or a no. But only the true Messiah can show it. Jesus is being kind and tender. To John, he provides the evidence that leaves John with only one collusion, one conclusion. Yes, you are the one who is to come. And it's amazing how Jesus does this. Jesus uses the Bible and the people to point John to himself. How do you get there, Joey? Well, these are not just random miracles performed by Jesus so he can flex his muscles. It's not what he's doing. If he wanted to show that, he could have like levitated two feet off the ground and like, go tell John that. He could have picked up like a boulder and thrown it really far and like, go tell John how strong I am. I threw boulder across field. He's not doing random miracles. He's showing the fulfillment of prophecy. 
Jesus knows John knows his Bible. And so when John heard the dead are raised, he would have thought, Isaiah 26, your dead shall live, their body shall rise. When he heard the blind shall see and the lame walk and the deaf hear, Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. When he heard good news preached to the poor, Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Jesus is providing John with biblical evidence. He's saying, look, I am fulfilling these prophecies. Yes, the judgment you preached about will come, but first will come Grace and salvation. See, John wasn't wrong about the Messiah. His view was incomplete. And his timing was a bit off. But he wasn't wrong. God is keeping his word, just not in this specific way that John expected. Because King Jesus defies expectations and his kingdom redefines categories. More than anything else, Jesus is pointing John to himself. I am the one who fulfill all these prophecies. And so, yes, I am the one who is to come. Jesus doesn't give John everything he wants. He probably wanted to get out of prison. He probably didn't want to be beheaded. And yet, he gives John everything he needs. We have to remember that, beloved. God may not give us everything we want. He probably won't because he's too good. But he does give us everything we need. And Jesus points John to the Bible because the Bible points to Jesus. And that's who John needs. More than John needed a yes or a no, more than he needed a direct answer, he needed to know he could delight in Jesus as Savior. That's what Jesus is doing. And again, notice how he does it. He uses John's friends. So Jesus used the word of God and the people of God to point John to the son of God. Think about that. The one who spent his entire life saying, look to Jesus, needs people to come to him and say, look to Jesus. Even the most seasoned saints need people to point them to Jesus. We never graduate from gospel community. We never grow so mature that we no longer need others in our life saying, look to Jesus. Why? Because left to ourselves, doubts become like weeds. Confusion grows and begins to entangle us in the dark. But when we have others around us, we share our confusion with with trusted brothers and sisters and friends, and they say, hey, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's what the Christian life is. It's messy people pointing messy people to a merciful Savior. That's what it is. God has designed us to need each other. We need each other to say, look to Jesus. Let's treasure Christ Jesus together. And beloved, that's one of the reasons prioritizing this gathering is so important for your soul. It's one of the main ways God has ordained and the Spirit of God uses the people of God to help each other look to the Son of God. Think about it. Each Sunday, we sing We pray, we read God's word, we listen to God's word, and we fellowship it together. And all the while, we're essentially doing what Jesus said here. Go and tell each other what you've seen and heard. Go and tell each other. So as you talk to one another after service, yes, talk about baseball, football, whatever else, but make sure you talk about Jesus. You point each other to Jesus. Let me tell you how Christ was at work in my life this week. Or I'm confused, I'm hurt. Tell me how Jesus was at work in life during this week so I can behold Christ together. That's why we have community groups. 
This isn't enough. It's necessary, but it's not enough. So in community groups, we get to know one another more personally and intimately and vulnerably in discipling relationships. And we come alongside one another and we say, hey, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. It's what we get to do. So we help each other. We, we rehearse the good news of the gospel. The penalty of sin has been paid. Our shame and guilt is taken away. God loves us and he likes us. We get to commune with God now as we journey toward heaven where we'll see Jesus face to face. Look to Christ. Behold, he's coming. Let's look to him. Let's travel. Let's sojourn to heaven together. Uninterrupted joy. Uninterrupted happiness. That's where we're headed. Everything sad will come untrue. Look to Christ. Look to Jesus. So do you see what happens? When you skip church or you just like blow off all these other things, you miss the encouragement that you need to look to Christ. And it's not just about you. You miss the opportunity to help others look to Jesus too. Beloved, our church needs you to be there for them. And whether you know it or not, you need us to be here for you too. That's what's happening here in this text. Jesus uses the word of God and the people of God to help everybody look to the Son of God, to himself. And like John, Jesus doesn't call us to take a blind leap of faith. We too can look at the evidence. I don't know what you've heard about Christianity, but um, often heard uh, that Christianity, you had to turn your brain off in order to believe what it teaches. Uh, I hope that's not true. Um, I like to think of myself someone as a logical person that tries to think deeply about things. And so we can look at the evidence. We, we, we see that the God-man, Jesus Christ, living a perfect life of joy and worship. We see Jesus hanging on a cross, satisfying God's holy requirement. We see Jesus placed in a tomb, and we see Jesus raised from the dead. So dear brother Christian, remember that, the resurrection. Don't take a blind leap, behold a risen Christ. Look to the old rugged cross, and then travel over to the empty tomb. For my friends who are skeptical about the Christian faith, I'd say the same thing to you. Same exact thing. Look to Jesus. Specifically, look to the physical, bodily resurrection of Christ. So here's what we believe. I know this is crazy. We truly believe God became a man, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, was buried in a tomb, and he got up and he's living. We believe that. That is a breathtaking, extraordinary claim. I get that. But here's what I want to remind you. Before that is a religious claim, it is a historical one. The Christian faith, as far as I know, is the only faith that our entire religion hinges on a public, verifiable event in history. It's not the result of private revelation. It's not the result of isolated personal experiences. It is a public display. And so if Jesus did not raise from the dead, we should pack our bags and go home. That's what the Bible says. 
1 Corinthians 15. Our own Bible says, if, it, if that didn't happen, then you're wasting your time. But if it did, and we believe it did, everything changes. We can't be like, yes, Jesus rose from the dead. What do you want for dinner? It's too, if, if, he, if, if God became man, lived, died, and rose in living, it changes everything. So if you want to talk more about that, I have a couple suggestions for you. First, just for you, friend, I have three copies of Who is Jesus? It speaks to this. If you will promise to read this and not just stick it on a shelf because it looks good, uh, come, they're going to be right up here. Just grab one. Take it, read it. Uh, two, I already blocked out this Friday. Uh, I blocked out lunch for you, my treat. Lunch for you if you're asking questions. My treat, come find me. I'll take you to lunch. If this Friday doesn't work, we'll find some time that works, but I'll take you to lunch and we can begin to ask these questions. Third, just ask the person that you came with. Like, hey, he said that you actually believe that. Do you believe that? If they're a member of our church, they should. <laughs> if not, come find me and after the end we'll talk. Um, but seriously, we can, we can walk this out. And, and notice, notice Jesus' last phrase. Verse 23. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Again, Jesus, me, he, he's, he's focusing all on himself, me. He says, look to me, don't be offended, don't stumble. I know it's hard, I know it can be confusing. But blessing comes for those that are not offended by Jesus. So why might John or us be offended by Jesus? What's he getting at? I thought he's this nice, you know, fluffy, loving sentimental, inspirational teacher who spouts off flowery things so he can boost our self-esteem. I would be offended by that. That's not who Jesus is. Jesus is radical. He's uncontrollable. Jesus confronts before he comforts. So think about this. This is just a few things that I took from the book of Mark and the other Gospels. Jesus says, unless we understand ourselves to be rebellious sinners, he's got nothing to offer us. Jesus claims he is the only way to have a relationship with God. On cultural issues, Jesus would have been called insensitive and a bigot. He demands radical repentance. If anyone would come after me, let him do what he wants. No! If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's radical. Even his death is offensive, if you know what it means. He says, you're so messed up and in so much trouble, the eternal Son of God had to come and rescue you. And let's not forget, his loving kindness is offensive because he welcomes the most vile of people. Those who are the outcast. Everything about Jesus doesn't fit into our boxes. And because of this, many stumble over this. And because of this, it's tempting for us to try to make Jesus less offensive and more palatable to the world. Let me be clear. We can be arrogant, offensive, rude, and jerks. And that does not honor Christ. 
So for those that are not Christians and you've run into a Christian and they were the arrogant one, they were the mean one. No, that's not the teaching of scripture. That person needs to repent. But Christ himself is offensive. We shouldn't be offensive, but Jesus knows that he is. Look at his words. He knows that he is offensive. So we can't remove it all. We have to trust the spirit. Jesus says, blessed are those who don't stumble over me or but place their trust in me. So again, this text is asking us a question. Will your heart be hardened or humbled by Jesus? Will you be offended by him or place your trust in him? Even in the midst of difficult circumstances, even when your expectations are left unmet, with the confusion of doubts plaguing your soul, will you look to Jesus? He promises when you do, you'll be blessed. That is, you'll be in the place of God's favor. Not everything you want, beloved, but everything you need, oh yeah. More than you could ever imagine? Absolutely. You'll be blessed, place of God's favor. And because of that, you can rest confidently. It's the last movement in this text. Rest in Jesus confidently. Everybody say, rest confidently. There we go. All right, look, Luke, big number seven, little number 24. When John's message had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What then did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I will I send my messengers before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. So rather than looking down on John, Jesus affirms him and defends him. He boasts about John's greatness. He says, John's not a flimsy reed shaken by the wind. He's not a pushover tickling the ears of the people, bending to what they want him to say. He's not a pansy wearing a cardigan preaching in the king's courts not John. He's in the wilderness. He's got bug in his teeth, honey dripping from his beard, wearing the latest animal clothing, saying, repent. He's not a pushover. He's not a pansy. He's the prophet of God. That's who you went to see. And he says, not just any prophet. He's the greatest prophet. Greater than Moses. Ezekiel. Jeremiah. Isaiah. Why? John's greatness comes not from who he is, his person, but from what he gets to do, his position. He's the one who personally gets to introduce the Messiah. All the other prophets pointed to, spoke about the coming king. John is greater than, because of his privileged position to personally introduce Jesus. So again, just notice what Jesus is saying about himself. If John is great, and I'm greater than what's left for me, I am the one who has come. So Jesus affirms John, and he doesn't stop there. Look at the second half of verse 28. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That's staggering. Jesus says all that he says to set up the stage to say something to us. Jesus reminds us of the abundant, lavish blessings we have in him, in his kingdom. As great as John the Baptist was, 
you, Christian brother or sister, are greater. That's amazing. In the midst of our questions, our confusion, Jesus wants us to know the great privileges and promises that belong to us so that we might rest in him. So our comfort in the most difficult circumstances, our unmet expectations, we could come from that not how we feel, but what Jesus says about us. In the kingdom, we are great, graciously loved, and gloriously redeemed. This king defies expectations. This kingdom redefines categories. Well, how are we greater? Isn't John in the kingdom? Yes, he is. And Jesus is speaking about a particular moment in time. But how are we we greater? Think about it. John's perspective was limited. It was limited. He knew Jesus would take away the sins of the world. But he didn't know how. And yet we get to hear. We don't look forward. We look back and we hear it is finished. We don't have to wonder. Rest in Christ confidently. Your worth, Christian brother and sister, your worth and true wealth are not measured in the world's estimation of greatness. Do you see that? You're a citizen of heaven. Your greatness comes not in what you do or in how you feel, but who Jesus says you are. This greatness is secured by the Holy Spirit living inside of us, God's very presence inside of us, to present us blameless before the presence of our King with great joy and honor. That's where our greatness comes from. That's why we can be confident, because our identity is not earned and created. It is given and received. Your confidence does not come in having everything figured out. Your hope is not dependent upon your own perfection. Your assurance comes not because you've managed to pull yourself up by bootstraps and achieve the American dream. What matters most? Certainly not your accomplishments. What matters most is not even the size of your faith, but the strength of your Savior. That's where our confidence comes. And here's good news. We have a mighty, strong Savior, Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. See, Jesus is so strong, he overcame death and hell. Jesus is so strong, he defeated, defanged, and destroyed the enemy of our soul. Jesus is so strong, he is going to bring heaven to earth. A gloriously redeemed people living on a fully restored earth, worshiping a resurrected Savior forever and ever, unhindered joy, everlasting glory forever. That's this Savior. He is strong, and so we rest confidently in Him. Jesus not only comforts us, but calls us great. How amazing is that? There's only one question left for us. How will you respond? Verse 29 and 30. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. Having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Some received Jesus, 
Others rejected him. What's the difference? Whether or not they received the baptism of John. What was the baptism of John all about? It's about repentance and trusting in Jesus. So the Pharisees, they thought they were good enough to earn God's favor. They were all buttoned up. They had all the answers. They didn't admit any struggles or doubts. And because of that, they didn't need a Savior. Except they did. They refused to repent and be baptized. They rejected the purpose of God. But the tax collectors, the most unlikely, realized their need and they said, God, you're just. In other words, they agreed with God. You are who you say you are. We are who you say we are. Jesus is who he says he is. We agree. We repent. We trust in Christ. He is enough. He is the promised Messiah. They look to Jesus for life, hope, joy, and salvation. And so Jesus presents us with two ways to respond. Will your heart be hardened by Jesus? Or will it be humbled by Jesus? Will you share your struggles? Will you look to Jesus? Will you rest in him? May God give us the grace to do that. To share our struggles humbly, look to Jesus quickly, and rest in Jesus confidently. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are magnificent. And you have given us this word to meet us where we are. I pray for all those that have heard the reading and the preaching of your word. You would give us the grace to believe, to trust, to be honest, to share our struggles, be quick to run to you, quick to rest in Christ. Comfort the doubting and the hurting this morning. For those that are not trusting in Christ, do you allow them to peer at the resurrection and consider its historical claim? For those that are encouraged, that are certain, that are fully assured, spur us on all the more that we might help others look to Christ, knowing that one day we're going to need people to come beside us and say, look to Jesus. Rest in Him. Lord, we love You. We praise You. And we do so in the name of the promised Messiah, Jesus the Christ, who is the one who came and is coming again. Amen. Amen.